Good morning, church. Glad to be with you on this fall day. For everyone online, thanks for joining us wherever you are from. Uh, wherever you are online, in person, pull out a Bible, paper, phone, whatever, because we're going to be going into Matthew chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 28 to 34. And as you're turning there, let me prepare you. Uh, we're in for what uh, a passage that some people might think is a little bit weird. It might be a little bit out there if you're a visitor. Uh, you chose an interesting day to be with us because today we're talking about demonic possessions and exorcisms and everything that goes in with that. And so it's a bit of an interesting topic, not one that I would necessarily like run to if it was like a choose your own message theme. It wouldn't be the one I grab and take off the shelf, but it's an important one for us to dive into. And we come to this because as a church, we're committed to going through the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through different books. And uh, one of my convictions, even though sometimes it's to my own chagrin, is to not skip over stuff and to commit to even the hard topics, the weird topics, the topics we don't think a lot about. And so here we are looking at a story that maybe most of us might just breeze by because, I mean, I don't know about you, I'm just going to take an, a guess here, but you probably don't think a whole lot about demonic possession or exorcisms in your day-to-day -day life. Anybody a regular piece? Maybe if you were a child or product of the 70s and 80s, that was the movie culture at the time, watching The Exorcist, The Shining, uh, movies where even cars would get possessed by demons and go to kill girls on the road. Like, this was a cultural byproduct. Now, though, we, we think it's not as prevalent, but if you go to Netflix chances are as you scroll through the listings, you will be overwhelmed by the number of shows that will deal with this subject matter. One of the most popular shows on the streaming platform right now is named after an evil spirit. It's called Lucifer, and the whole show centers around the main character of Satan. And so unless you're watching those, though, you're probably not spending a lot of time to think about it. Me, personally, I can't do those shows. Like, I just, I freak out. I just can't, I can't handle it. And because for me, what it is, is it's something where I go, no, this isn't just zombies that are like pure fiction. This is something real and something that I have seen in the world around me as I have spent my life doing some travels in other places. And so uh, what we need to do is come to a text like this and first sort of build out an understanding of what we're talking about so that we can understand what it means for us. And so today what we're going to do is we're actually going to read our text and then we're going to look at a sort of biblical understanding of demons and evil spirits and all that kind of stuff. And then we'll come back into our Bible passage so we can see understanding what it is uh, framed around, what it is actually trying to say. What is the author trying to communicate to us? And so as we go there, what I want you to do for just a moment is think, what is my perception when I hear the word demon or Satan or exorcism? What do you think about? For some, maybe we think about the uh, angel and demon cartoon. You know, there's an angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other shoulder, and they 
tell us what we should do and we get caught in a battle of the two and have to choose between one. Perhaps for some of us, Hollywood is where we have got our depiction. And so those videos and those movies like The Exorcist or uh, The Possession of Hannah Grace or The Shining or one of those is the thing that causes you to think about it. Maybe perhaps you've been in some places like me where there is a very tangible and real presence of this sort of thing. I remember being in Southeast Asia, going to a temple of worship to sort of go and see what was going on and to experience the culture, and coming into a place where I ended up not being able to breathe and feeling as if there was something digging into my right hip. What I realized in that space was that there was very real worship happening of something else which was trying to impact my view of the world. It wasn't until I was able to leave that place praying to God between the few breaths I could take for help that I was released from what I was experiencing. When I was in South Africa, I had an opportunity to go out to one of the townships. And as we were there, we were visiting a creche where uh, these women would take care of children who were dying of AIDS. And when they heard that two local pastors were coming, the witch doctor decided to come and pay a visit as well. It's a very strange thing to explain, but as I came and saw that, I was overwhelmed by the presence of darkness. Understand, our understanding, then, of how we see these things really does frame how we come to Scripture. If all you think about is an angel and a demon on a shoulder, you might just blow by the Scriptures that we're looking at. If you've been to a place where you've experienced these types of presences and forces and these realities, there's a good chance that you will be impacted by these scriptures in a different way. So let's take a look at our passage, and then we're going to unpack it with a biblical view of the demonic, and then we'll move into what, seeing what this passage really has to say. So let's look. Matthew chapter 8, verse 28 to 34. When he, that's Jesus, arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men were coming from the tombs to meet him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. And so the demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us in to that herd of pigs. And so Jesus said to them, go. And so they came out of the men and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, and they went into the town and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. So as we read that, it's easy to see how maybe different perspectives of what this story is trying to say could 
uh, really impact us? What is our previous understanding? And so what's going to happen is as we go from sort of this point forward in the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to come into quite a number of different stories of Jesus dealing with evil spirits and these presences which to the average person might not be understood. And so as we go into this and try to engage with it so we can understand really the, the truth of what's happening, but also so we can understand what Matthew is trying to get at in the way that he writes these accounts, we need to have sort of a, a biblical view of this. And so let's just take a couple minutes to, to sort of look at just the basic facts, the, the main framework from which we can understand out of this passage and a few others, what's going on with demons, the devil, all of these evil spirits. And so let's just start with the, the simple fact that there are demons. There's people who don't believe that. There's people who don't believe that there's uh, evil beings who exist in, in the world. And if you come with a biblical view, you will find that that can't be true because there is over 300 references to the demonic in Scripture. You'll find these references saying things like the devil or Satan, demons, evil spirits, spiritual forces, and gods of this age. There's many others, but basically there's all these different terms, and they refer to both generic names and presences and also specific names to name certain beings. Now, we know that there's these beings. Where did they come from? Well, we're told in Scripture, in the book of Genesis, elsewhere, that these beings were created by God. They're created to be angels. Yet, as God created these beings, just like he gave the ability to peop for people to make decisions and have a level of free will, he gave these angels free will to do what they would do. And some chose not to worship him. Some chose instead to rebel against him. Chiefly, we know of Satan or Lucifer. And then he has a whole little army that rolls with them who decides to go against God and rebel against him. And so what does God do? He says, not in my presence. And so he takes all of them, he kicks them out of heaven, and they end up in the heavenly realms, as it will say in Scripture, and upon the earth, where they now live. Now, when I think about that, I kind of go, well, like, how many are there? <laughs> like, okay, we're talking, Kyle, that there's going to be these different instances. We're going to read different spots in Matthew. We just read one where uh, out of a couple guys, some demons go into a whole bunch of pigs. Like, how, how many could there be? Well, we don't know exactly. As far as I can tell, Scripture doesn't give us, like, here, there are X number, here's their names, here's what they do. But there is enough in Scripture for us to understand that there are many, and they are in many places, and they have many different sort of levels of power and authority, and they do do different things. In Mark's account of this very same story, we'll find out that there's at least over 2,000 of these beings, because we see in Mark chapter 5, which is the uh, disciple Mark's account of Jesus' life and this very same story that we read in Matthew, that when Jesus interacts with these men, specifically one, he ends up having sort of an expanded conversation that Matthew just didn't record all of. And in that conversation, Jesus says, what is your name? To the demons, to which the demon responds, my name is Legion, for we are many. 
And this term of legion is a Roman military term that refers to a military unit of up to 6,000 men. And we know that there is certainly seeming to be a lot of different presences because when Jesus says go out of these men and into the herd of pigs, we see that these demons end up going into a herd, as Matthew tells us, of at least 2,000 different pigs. So what are they doing? What, what, what is their purpose? Well, their purpose is just as their purpose was when they were in heaven and kicked out by God. Their purpose is to antagonize the creator and his creation. Demonic forces are here to try to rebel against God and fight for what he stands for. And we see this all throughout Jesus' interaction with these demons. We see it in the Apostle Paul when he talks to the church. In Ephesians chapter 6, when Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, he writes this, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Scripture makes it very clear that we as Christians are in a battle alongside God against the forces of evil in our world. These created beings who have rebelled against him, who have come to be antagonists. This is the framework that we have for understanding how many there are, who they are, and what they're all about. So my question then is sort of, well, what can they do? Like, what's their level of, like, power? Like, what can they actually accomplish? And even in this, it's very interesting that Scripture says that there seems to be this different levels and layers. We know that there's Satan, who's the chief of all the evil spirits, who lives and he rules, and he's the great antagonist of God. He comes to lie. He's deceived people. He's tried to keep us perpetually living in sin in our abandonment of the ways of God. And then there seems to be all these other ones, and they have different levels of power and control. We'll see in Matthew chapter 17, when Jesus talks about demons, he says, this type of demon can only come out by prayer. Where we'll see other demons in other places who Jesus only says one word to, and then they're dealt with. We'll see other places where people have a a demonic presence in their life, and they have enough control that they can just walk to Jesus and say, please take care of me. Whereas here in Matthew chapter 8, we see that the demons can have so much control that they actually change a person. We see that these men who these demons possessed were so wild, so out of it, that they went out and they sort of ruled this little plot of land that no one would go into. Everyone would travel around it because these guys were so out of control. And so there's these different levels of these demonic presences. There's many of them. And so it seems like a very dark day. But the beautiful thing, knowing that when we come to these passages, is it shows how much greater our God is. It's actually really helpful for us to understand how bleak the circumstance seems in Scripture just if you were to put it on paper against how good God is. Because when you see the darkness with the light at hand, you see how weak the darkness truly 
is. And so let's take a moment, let's go back into this passage and see what Jesus does. In verse 28, when he arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men were coming from the tombs to meet him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God, they shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into that herd of pigs. So he said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake, and they died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into town, and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. With our understanding and seeing who Jesus is, we come to something that is very important. And Matthew wants us to actually grab hold of something here, because the disciples were wrestling with something. Where we come to this account is early on in the ministry of Jesus, and he has just preached the Sermon on the Mount, he's gone about some healings, he's amassed some followers, and they're beginning to follow him, and as they watch all this and try to figure out what's going on, they're really trying to question, who is this man? In the account of what happened right before this, if you joined us a couple weeks ago, we looked at when Jesus and his disciples were on a boat crossing the Sea of Galilee. As they cross the Sea of Galilee, they encounter this ferocious storm so severe that these experienced sailors and fishermen freak out. We are going to lose our lives. There is nothing left to save us. And they When they wake up Jesus, Jesus stands up, he rebukes the storm, which interestingly is the same word that we use for when Jesus casts out demons. Jesus rebukes the storm and it ceases immediately. After all this happens, what what do Jesus' disciples do? They sit there and they ask a question. What kind of man is this? Who is this guy? What, 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 what is he all about? Like, like, where is he getting this from? How can he accomplish it? And interestingly, what, this happen, what happens in this account that we just read is that it answers that question. The ancient church scholar Theophilact once wrote, while the men in the boat are doubting what manner of man is this, the demons came to tell them. The demons reveal who God is. They reveal that Jesus is God. Look at verse 29. We see when the demons see Jesus, so Jesus has come, he's landed in port, he's heading up into this new region of Gentiles, and as he comes through, he passes by this area that everyone else avoids. These two men see him, and the demons within them look at him and say, this is Jesus, the Son of God. What do you want with us? The demons recognize him instantly. They know who he is and what power he has over them. Look at them. They say, have you come to torture us before the appointed time? And then they plead with him. Will you, if you're going to send us out, send us out into those pigs? 
This is not a negotiation between two people on even playing ground. There is an acknowledgement that one is superior. The demons look at Jesus and know that he is far more powerful than them, that they have no negotiating rights, and they know that it's all on Jesus, whether he chooses to cast them out or get rid of them or end them, as they're alluding to with this final appointed time. They know that the power of Jesus is incredible, far more than they even have as a legion of evil spirits who are able to possess men, to control their lives, to basically run the gamut of an entire community. Even these demons know who Jesus is. There is the Son of God. And what's incredible, as Matthew recounts what happens for us, we see what God can really do. God has the power and authority, so much of it, that all he has to say is one simple word to deal with this whole legion of demons. When Jesus says the word, go, they leave the people who they are possessing. They cross across a field. They go into the herd. The herd of pigs goes and runs into the lake, and they all die. When Jesus says go, it is done. Like, it's hard to fathom. Like, it is incredible to think that this sort of scenario could really happen, but this is what God can do, and it is a wonderful thing. And I can't uh, help but wonder what the disciples must have felt in this moment. Like, you've just come off. You've just seen Jesus do something miraculous. You're sitting there scratching your head being like, who is this guy? Like, like, like what type of power must he have to be able to calm a storm? And then you see this. These men who are known to be wild and crazy, who live in the uh, caves and the graves, these people who have a control of a huge army, and he's able to take them, heal them, and get rid of all these unclean spirits. It must have been incredible. But what I love is that knowing that these men wouldn't have just seen the miraculous, but they would have seen prophecy fulfilled. These are good Jewish boys. They would have understand what the scriptures had to say about the one of God who would come to establish his kingdom, and they would have known all the stories about him. And there's one of these particular prophecies that comes to us from Isaiah chapter 65, verses 1 to 5. This is written 700 years before Jesus was born. And it was from this guy, Isaiah, who's a prophet, who came to tell the nation of Israel, hey, there will be someone one day who will be sent by God who will come to establish his kingdom here on earth. And this is what it's going to look like. And let's read this and think as we read through it how this parallels to what we read in Matthew. It says this, I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here am I, here am I. All day long I have held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations. A people who continually provoke me to my very face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on altars of bricks. 
who sit amongst the graves, who spend their night keeping secret vigil, who eat the flesh of pigs, whose pots hold broth of impure meat, who say, keep away, don't come near me, for I am too sacred for you. There is so many wonderful parallels that we see coming together. Jesus has gone from this region of Israel where people worship him and would call on God regularly to a place, to a region called the Decapolis, which is run by Gentile people, people who worship other gods, not the God Yahweh. And they are the ones who Jesus comes to. Look at the parallel. Jesus says, I will come to those who will not call on me, who do not look for me. I come. He says, I'll come to those who deal with things unclean, those who live in the, who, who spend time in the graves. I come to those who eat pig's flesh. Well, look at where he is. He's in this region of land where there are men living within the graves, where people are tending to herds of pigs, which the Jewish people would not eat for they were seen as unclean. And here these people are eating the pork. They're living in the graves. And this is who Jesus comes to. Jesus comes and shows who he is, and Isaiah says that when that Messiah comes, the people will look at them, him and say, keep away from us. What's the response of the people who Jesus comes to? They say, stay away. Go back to your side of the lake. When Jesus accomplished the healing and deliverance of these two men, he was fulfilling a great prophecy to reveal that he truly is the Son of God, that he is God in the flesh who has come. He is the one who has the power to supersede any power or authority or evil presence upon the earth, even a whole multitude of them. He is a one who comes to free people who are enslaved and captive to wrong thinking, to wrong spirits, and set them free for his purpose and his glory. This is that man who so many wonder, who is he? This is an incredible thing for us to grab hold of and for us to, to wrestle with. When we look at this story, I think it's easy for us to look back and, and look at these people in the community who did the exact opposite of what they should do, and it's easy for us to just kind of write them off. But the question is, what do we do when we see that man? It really saddens me to see what these people do as Jesus comes. He comes into their community. He takes two men who are so beaten and broken, who are enduring such terrible things, and he sets them free, and he releases this area of community for the people to come back to, and they come up to him and say, Get out of here, Jesus. Why do they do it? Because their priorities weren't straight. They looked at their pigs, their precious pigs, our wealth, our possessions, the things that will give us livelihood. And they say, those were more important than what God just did. When we read this as the way that Matthew wrote it, it gives us a perspective and us an opportunity to ask ourselves, do we do that very same thing? Do we choose to ignore the revelation of who Jesus is in our lives? Do we choose to focus on the love of other things instead of our love of Christ? 
the question that each one of us has to ask is, who is God and what will we do with him? This is something that we see time and time again in Scripture. Many of us are also familiar with the story of Job. The story of Job, right in the opening chapters, you can read this, that Satan comes to God and he says, let me afflict this poor guy. And God says, all right, I will allow you to go to a certain extent to test his faithfulness to me. And so Satan throws a whole barrage of things which upheave Job's life. He loses possession, he loses wealth, he loses family, he loses health. And at the end, we look in and the question is, will Job say, I love this God? These stories are not fiction, they're history, but they provide for us an option to look in on them to question the life that we would live. The whole invitation of Matthew is to see who this Jesus is, and he invites us to look at him as the king who can be over everything. The question we must ask ourselves is, who do I say he is. And so every one of us must decide who is this man. And it's not just about acknowledging him as being God. It says in scripture, and we see here, that even the demons know who he is. They say he's the son of man. He is God. That doesn't mean they're saved. That doesn't mean they're in relationship with Jesus. That does not mean that they will experience salvation because it's not enough to, to just acknowledge God's position, but it's to enter into relationship with him. And the only way every one of us can do that is by responding to God's call on our life, to receiving what Jesus did on the cross, and to call him Lord and Savior and pursue relationship with him. What we read here in Matthew chapter 8 is just that taste of where Matthew is trying to take us. We see that the ultimate defeat of evil, the ultimate exorcism that occurs within the earth that has ever happened, occurred on the cross. When Jesus came to give up his life, he took on the sin of the world so that when he died and rose again, he could stamp out its power for any person's life who enters in. To relationship with him. If you are here, even if you acknowledge that he is God, you have to wrestle with, have I received what he's done on the cross, and am I pursuing relationship with him? And church, my hope is that's what we would do, and I hope that as we do that, we would be able to step in to the freedom that Jesus has bought for us. So many of us, especially, even if we acknowledge who God is, can often walk through our day-to-day -day life just forgetting about what his power and his presence mean. We can look around and feel so defeated by what's going on in the world and even within ourselves. We look at the temptations and the challenges we face and we go, this is just too much. We listen to the devil's lies when he tells us that we are not good enough, that we can't overcome, that we will be enslaved to certain sins forever. And we sit defeated. 
But the truth is, and we see it in these words written down by Matthew, inspired by his Holy Spirit, no, I am here with you. The Holy Spirit, the very presence and person of God indwells our lives as believers, invites us to receive him more fully each and every day, allowing us to bring our bondage and our baggage and the evil that we face time and time again to him. And he wants to defeat its power in us and he has the power to do it. So won't we please step in to the freedom and hope that we find in Jesus. And then will we go? Will we go home and speak of all the great things that the Lord has done? In the story that Matthew writes here, it, it sort of wraps up, but when we come to, to Mark's account of this very same story, he tells us what happens after the people reject Jesus. People say, now Jesus, we don't want you. Get out of this place. You're costing us what is most dear for us. But Jesus, out of his love and mercy, turns to one of the men who he has delivered and says, I want you to stay with them. We read about this in Mark chapter 5, verse 19. We see that, that one of the men who is the spokesman when the demons are interacting with Jesus comes and he says, please let me go with you. Let me get in your boat. Let me follow you. I want to be one of your disciples. And so Jesus gives him a mission, but it's not to come with him. He says in verse 19, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy upon you. That is what we are called to do. We are called to be the ambassadors that Jesus invites as he breaks down the power of sin and death within our lives. He calls us to go and share that good news with the community around us. If you declare that Jesus truly is the Son of God, if Jesus really is your Lord and Savior, if his Holy Spirit is living within you and breaking every chain that you carry that's tethered to sin and death, would you go and be his witness? Will you speak of the great mercy that God has shown you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word, and, and Lord God, we, we recognize that it can be confusing and it can be difficult to, to, to wade through some of this stuff because, God, we just don't see it. We just don't necessarily see these presences and these beings. But, God, we thank you that you reveal the stuff in your word, that we can walk through it and see how your scripture speaks to these things. And, and Lord God, I, I, I pray that we would not look at the enemy, that we would not look at, at the demonic forces that are at work in the world as, as, as having this authority and this power that they don't. Lord God, but would they be a way of amplifying, our understanding of that be a way of amplifying who you are and how good you are. Jesus, we thank you that you have the power to cast out a legion of demons at your word. And Lord God, we thank you that you took that power, you took your life, you took your breath, and you went to the cross and you said, it is finished. Lord God, we thank you that you have finished 
breaking the chain that ties people and their sin to permanent death and that there is a way forward and that we can come into relationship with you and receive all that you would have for us. God, we look forward to the day when you will return and it will be finally, finally done and that we will get to experience the fullness of your presence and nothing that comes from your enemy. Lord Jesus, we invite you to do a work in our lives that we have not seen yet. Holy Spirit, would you move in our lives? Would each one of us who's a follower of you lay down the the lies and the temptations and the sin that, that wreaks havoc on our life at your feet so that you would set us free, so that we would see victory over these things, so that we would no longer be bound to your enemy, but we would be fully surrendered to you. And Holy Spirit, as we step into that freedom, as we receive more and more of your continued mercy, would you empower us, would you embolden us to be like the man that you sent back to the community who rejected him, and would we go with a loud voice and declare how great you are, how loving you are, how powerful you are, how merciful you are, and Lord, through that testimony, Holy Spirit, would you continue to come out and impact the lives of those who you want to win to yourself, and Lord God, we pray for a mighty move of your spirit in our community where we see a great chain because of the power of the name of Jesus. We pray this all in Jesus' name, by the power of the Spirit, for the glory of the Father. Amen.